When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the New Books in Psychoanalysis podcast. I am Ashish Roy, and I teach and practice psychoanalytic therapy in New Delhi. Today, I welcome Dr. Karen Messina, author of the book Resurgence of Global Populism, a psychoanalytic study of projective identification, blame shifting, and the corruption of democracy. Dr. Messina is a psychologist and a certified psychoanalyst, as well as a supervising and training analyst at the Washington Baltimore Center for Psychoanalysis. She's also on the medical staff of suburban hospital John Hopkins Medicine in Bethsida, Maryland. Her recent books include Misogyny, Projective Identification and Mentalization, Psychoanalytic Social and Institutional Manifestations, and today she's talking about her book, Resurgence of Global Populism, a psychoanalytic study of projective identification, blame shifting, and the corruption of democracy. Hi, Karen. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this podcast. And I'm very excited to talk to you about this topic. I think that there's a, a, a lot of things uh, principles and theories in psychoanalysis that applies to many things that are going on politically in the world. And uh, I sort of have a personal charge to uh, sort of explain this uh, as much as possible, because I think that it, it really is applicable to what's going on in society today. So I wanted to start by asking you very broadly that uh, what kind of questions did you think that psychoanalysis needed to raise to study this process of populism as you have framed it? Well, I think that there are some, some terminal, I think there's, there are some concepts and some, some terms that really apply, as I said, to what's going on in the world politically today. But these are sort of buried in, um, in, in books and theories. And there are, they apply to everyday situations in addition to uh, political uh, happenings that are, are going on in the world. Uh, just to, to mention two, one is splitting and one is something called projective identification. That sounds like uh, a complex idea. And it is a complex idea, but it also is... A, a simple concept that happens all the time. And that's when people shift blame, blame to someone else or to some other group. So it's not me, it's you is the idea. And I think that this happens, it definitely happens in populist countries. So I, you know, it's my mission, my charge, as I said, to talk about these things because it's right in front of us and, and people have written about them. Uh, them being these concepts and defect defense mechanisms but it's it's not always it's it it's it's not known it's it's not very well known at all 
So when you talk about populism, is there a time frame that you trace historically uh, that is your frame of reference? Could you repeat that question, the last part? I didn't quite quite hear it. Is there a historical time frame that you feel that you are using to talk about populism? Well, I think it actually, populism is a very old uh, concept. I think it goes back to ancient Greece. There was um, one particular leader, Alcibiades, I think was his name. And um, again, he was, uh, he does go back to leadership in ancient Greece. So this, this is an old, old concept. It's been happening for a long time. Um, and fundamentally, I think what happens is that leaders, um, they decide that they're going to, um, well, lead, lead people. And they start out by uh, thinking that, well, that, that they're going to do something good for the people, uh, that they are the people who can lead others to the right way. And so they go about doing that. Uh, they tell people that they're for them, that the elite or the people in charge are against them and they're going to take over and do what's right for the people, give them back what is rightfully theirs. And it's very seductive. People, they buy into this because of hardships they're experiencing or um, other problematic things that are going on in their lives. But the problem is these populist leaders don't follow through on what they say they're going to do. So where they, whereas they say they're going to give back to the people what is rightfully theirs, something seems to shift. If they had the intention in the beginning, they don't follow through on it. And maybe they, maybe they didn't have that intention. That's hard to say, but it seems things go awry um, at some point along the journey. One of the things that your book brings out so beautifully is that uh, it shows us how there is a kind of a breakdown in democracy that these leaders are able to uh, bring to certain effect by creating a split uh, in different fractions of society. And uh, I was wondering that what made you observe this, that this was happening, that this split is getting created and these leaders have a way of, as you are saying, shifting the blame, but basically not leaving a space in society for a conversation to take place between different sides. Well, I think that I observed it, this phenomenon originally with patients uh, who individually or as part of a couple always blame the other person and never take responsibility for their own behavior. It happens at couples work all the time. It's his fault or it's her fault. Well, it's usually not all of any one person's fault or any one group's fault. So I, I've been observing this for a long time with my, in my work. I think when Donald Trump got in to office, I think that that's 
one of the first times that it really occurred to me that it wasn't all one group uh, or or another, and I still think that's the case. But Trump polarized people into the good good group of people and the bad group of people. Um, I, he might not have used those words, but you were either with him or you were against him. And so I think that's when I started to put it together. And then I started to see how that was happening in countries around the world. And it had been for many, many years. I think it's a populism is a somewhat new idea unless they've studied it in school to Americans. America, I mean, maybe it's existed, but Americans didn't really know that much about populism before Trump was on the scene as leader. Uh, they either were living in a democracy or and I'll include myself, we thought we were living in a democracy. I'm not, I'm not sure that we were 100% correct, but we thought that was the case. But when Trump came in, it became clear that there were the people, the Trump followers, who would follow him no matter what, and, and many of them still are, and they were the good people. And then the other people, in, in Trump's view, as he portrays it, are, I don't, I don't think he calls them the bad people, but the people who don't know what they're doing, they don't know the right way to do things, but, but clearly it's the good and the bad. So there was that split that I had seen for so many years of, in my work, and that I started to see in other countries. You mentioned in your book also that Trump has been defeated, but there is something which Trump stands for. There is something latent in this process of dividing the society, which still lurks everywhere. Uh, I was wondering that what makes you think that it lurks and what can we do about it? Uh, what, what, if you clarify that a little bit, what makes me think, what lur lurks? You said uh, that is out, but he still lurks in some places. Like what he stands for still looks. Well, he has followers, his base, and um, survey after survey uh, indicates that the base, his base, is uh, going to follow him no matter what. So uh, Donald Trump can lie, um, he can cheat, he can be dishonest on his taxes. These these people, his base follow him they they don't somehow they overlook things like that when it comes to Donald Trump and in a way other people have have made this same comparison uh, one person is Michael Diamond he's a, a psychoanalyst in California and he he talks about uh, this cult-like phenomenon and in many ways it feels that way to me too with cult leaders, I mean, they, they say whatever they say or do whatever they care to do, and their followers follow them. So it's, it has a cult-like feel. Other people have written uh, about this, too. I think there's a book, um, something like the culture of, uh, not the culture, the cult of Trump. Then uh, that was written by somebody who was actually in a cult for a while. And he talks about how you get really pulled in 
to the belief system of the cult and you kind of lose your capacity to think yourself. Um, other people have called that, psychoanalysts in particular, have called that a large group regression. I don't know if you if you know the work of Vamik Vulcan. He's written things. Um, he's an international um, thinker, writer, scholar, and he's written a lot about this large group regression. Right? People in large group groups regress to a, 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 a less mature um, way of thinking, uh, and often it is. Uh, induced by this leader who is um, bestowing their beliefs or their knowledge on the group. So I, I don't know if that answers your question fully, but I'm happy to take it further if it doesn't. Yeah, by listening to you, I was just wondering that there is always an interface between the leader and the masses and the masses also choose the leader. Uh, so does the leader also represent something that the masses are struggling with or does their choice represent something which is actually fractured in society, which the leader has a way of picking up upon, uh, which is deeply traumatic in some way? Um. Yes, I think so. The leader is very good at assessing what the masses need. In other words, what his base needs, what they don't have. And in the case, uh, well, in America, what happened is that there were people who thought the elite on the East Coast primarily, maybe California, but definitely East Coast, were... Uh, running the country and that middle-class Americans didn't have a voice anymore. And so Trump saw that, he honed in on it, and he said uh, in many, many ways and illustrated that he was for them, for the middle-class American. I saw after one rally, and reporters were talking to various people who attended the rally, and one person said, well, I like Donald Trump because he's just like me. I live in suburbia, in middle America. Um, I have, and she went on to explain a little bit about her, her life. And it was actually nothing like Donald Trump's life in Mar-a-Lago, uh, which is a, a very, well, it, it, it's like a palace. It, there aren't real real palaces in the United States, but it's it, it comes close in Palm Beach. And he grew up as a very wealthy child, young man, older man. So his life doesn't reflect this woman's life at all, but he creates this illusion. It's almost like a magic show of sorts so that people believe that this is this, this man is just like me. Therefore, he's certainly going to take up my causes and do what I need because we're the same. So there's some sort of phenomenon that exists of that sort, at least with populism in the United States. Um, in Europe, there's, there's been a movement lately uh, within the last few years. It's, 
headed up by the Devos Research Group, and they're studying different types of populism. So that they have, I think, I believe it's four characteristics or, or poles on each side uh, that they look at. Then they look at political groups to see where they fall. So they consider exclusionary, inclusionary characteristics, authoritarian, non-authoritarian. I believe uh, one of them is uh, nativistic versus not nativist um, characteristics and radical uh, democratic ideas versus conspiratorial populism. So these are these are the factors that they look at and that what they've come up with, I believe are uh, right-wing populist parties, left-wing populist parties, illiberal, I think that's sort of post-communist populist parties and something they call anti-establishment groups of populists. So based on the criteria I mentioned, they, they're now categorizing uh, groups in Europe based on, on these characteristics. So populism is uh, alive and well uh, at, in it really around the world, in Europe, in Asia, South Asia, um, South America, Central America, Australia, New Zealand. It's, it's something that's a political movement that's happening in these places. I also found it very interesting that in each of the leaders and the countries that you write about, there is something psychohistorical in the leader's life, which is unprocessed and it's being lived out uh, in this populist way. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little about that and how you started thinking in that way about leadership and populism. Well, I think one thing that I, I, I started to think about Donald Trump and it became pretty obvious is that deception and false beliefs were not a problem for him at all. Um, and, and so I noticed that that was happening in other countries too. Going back to Trump, Donald Trump lies on a regular basis. And that became something that people started to more or less accept. I don't know that it's the new normal exactly, but it's much more acceptable to lie than it, than it ever has been in, in my lifetime in the United States. And I've been tuned into politics since I was a child. And I don't ever remember anything like this. Um, so... Uh, I think free speech also gets challenged. That's another thing that happens. If you, uh, well, if you go down this rabbit hole of populism even more, I think you see four com major components uh, of populism, at least as I, as I see it, uh, that, that each of these leaders exhibit. They, they do the splitting thing that I talked about before, the splitting, which is a defense mechanism. And the second thing is projective identification, which we haven't talked about too much. And that is that if there's something about themselves they have trouble tolerating, they don't like, they put it on another group 
of people or another person. Uh, that so that has an it can be an unconscious process or a conscious one. If it's conscious one, I call it. I I, I don't know how many people call it this, although I did notice it much must be catching on that President Xi used this. And, and and the term is blame shifting. So it's, you know, it's not me, it's you, but it's a conscious, you know you're doing it. Whereas projective identification sometimes is it just happens. It, and you want to get rid of this. I say want to, you don't even know you want to, but you can't tolerate a characteristic. So it's the other guy. Um, just as an example of this, because it can be hard to explain at times, bullies uh, employ projective identification. So most bullies have been bullied before themselves. I think all bullies have been bullied. They've been the subject of ridicule. They've been told there are many, many things. I mean, it ranges from not being good at sports or being the, the fat kid on the playground or being not very smart. They've been bullied, but it's a bad feeling. Nobody wants to feel that this group of people, these kids are laughing at them. Bullying can be at any age, but I'm saying it, it does happen with children. Okay, so what do they do? They want to get rid of this. It doesn't feel very good. So if they put it on another child and say another boy on the playground and say, oh, he's so scrawny, he's so stupid, he's this, he's that, it makes him the big guy. And the other, the other child then can feel like, um, I'm using he in this case, it certainly happens with girls and the mean girl phenomenon. But in this case, boy. So the other boy now feels like he is the scrawny, not very powerful, not good at sports kid. And the other one, the initial bully, is freed up of it, at least for a while. So it's it's getting rid of a quality one can't stand and putting it on, on someone else. Uh, and then that's done consciously when it comes to, to blame shifting. So it's conscious, it's not so conscious. Um, and the, the fourth thing that occurs with populace, and this is something that I discovered, this, this term, but I think it fits very well. Uh, it's, it's called stochastic terrorism. And what that is, it's a pretty simple idea. It's when somebody, a leader, rabble rouses, he gets he gets the crowd all charged up, he or she can definitely be a woman. Um, there just happen to be more male populist leaders in the world at this time. There are some, some women, but they rabble rouse. They go to a rally, um, give a big speech, and they get the crowd all charged up. And then to take up their cause, somebody goes out and commits a crime. And But who's blamed for the crime? It's not the rabble rouser. It's not the, the leader. It's not the person who gave the speech. It's the person who went out and did something on their behalf. And an example of that occurred when classified documents were discovered in Donald Trump's home. 
he was incensed. He said his home had been invaded, even though the papers belonged to the United States government and the National Archives. But, but Donald Trump said, and he continues to maintain that these documents belong to him. And he, he talked about this on TV. I don't know if there was a rally, or if there was time for a rally, but he has talked about it in a rally since then. But he, he was very upset. He said it was the FBI who was bad, um, the National Intelligence Agency, other, other groups were bad. He was innocent. One of his, one of his followers went to a place uh, out west and tried to take over an FBI building. And he did it because Donald Trump had been wronged. Uh, and unfortunately, the man was apprehended and, and shot and he, he was killed. So it's, again, it's when somebody from the crowd does something on behalf of the, the populist leader and, and that's, he's the person, he or she is the person who gets in trouble. Uh, and the, the 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 populist leader or the stochastic terrorist says, mm, no, "I was I was in Chicago or I was in London. I, I had nothing to do with it." So they get away with it because of plausible deniability. They weren't actually at the scene of the crime. So anyway, so I think those are the four things: splitting, projective identification, blame shifting, and stochastic terrorism are the, are the four major components of populism as I see it pretty much around the world. So you started by saying that how you observed splitting and projective identification in your patients, in your practice. And I was wondering that what kind of repair is possible when these processes produce so much violence as you have just spoken about uh, at a social level. How does one repair society um, when the outcome is so lethal when these defenses are put into action? I think the overall arching umbrella idea is mentalization, which is another word that has, it's, it's problematic because people don't know what that means. There are many practitioners that are very, very, who are very bright that don't know the meaning of that word. So I've broken that down to um, just speaking in an atmosphere of respect. You just need to talk to somebody to listen. So it's listening. Uh, maybe that's the first thing before talking. Listening to the other side or the other person in an atmosphere of respect without judging the person. So in other words, if two people get together and just listen to each other. You don't have to agree, but you just listen to the other person. That's a starting point. There is a group in the United States, and I, I recently heard that they were also um, in giving, giving a talk or presentation in Europe someplace, so I guess this is spreading. It's called Braver Angels. I don't know if you've heard of it before, but it was started by this uh, family therapist in, I believe, Minnesota. He's also a university professor, Bill Doherty. And he got people together after the 2016 um, election when people were then having trouble. He, he calls the groups the blue states, 
the Democrats and the red states, the Republicans. He would get red state and blue state people together. It still does. And they would talk about their differences in a civil way. Uh, and, and then eventually, when they started talking and talking about the strengths and weaknesses of their own party, then they were able to see some common ground. Well, maybe we're not so different after all. So on a personal level, it's kind of like, in a way, um, discrimination of various types. Say there's somebody who's a rather bigoted person and he lives in a neighborhood with uh, a wide array, array of people from various countries and backgrounds. If that person gets to know the person next door on a on a personal level, just say there's a barbecue and then they talk and they realize, well, yes, my son is getting ready to go to college. Oh, my son is too. Or um, I had this experience at work. Oh, yeah, so did I. People who who have been so so different and, and people who think they have such different views. Once they get to know the other person or the other group on a person-to-person -person level, then they start to see common ground, commonality. So it has so much to do with talking and listening to the other side as a starting point. So Bill Doherty has been quite successful. Braver Angels is, is um, well, it's, it's now, there are groups in Europe. So talking is the first thing. There's also related to this, a couple of things that you highlight, which are very interesting. One is that you say there are high truth societies where populism is perhaps much lower. And you talk about the concept of epistemic trust, which also I thought was very interesting. If you could speak a little about both these things that what are the characteristics of a high truth society and uh, how can we achieve or move towards epistemic trust? Well, um, in terms of your second question, I, I think that it has to do with trusting leadership. You have to have trust in the person who is telling you something. I mean, this goes back to child development. I mean, children thrive when they trust their primary caregivers. And children thrive when they trust their teachers and administrators. And so if we they have to trust the leaders that we have, if we don't, so I guess the key word is trust. If we don't trust the leaders, then, then things either don't progress in a positive way or they fall apart. Uh, there have been lots of studies about epistemological trust and and uh, well, it, it has to do with believing in what's being said. That might've been only a partial answer. So let me know if I can flush that out anymore. So are you saying that if we are able to build this trust in a society, it leads to what you call as a high truth society? Uh, what is the word you're saying, a what society? A high truth society. High truth society. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I think that that would follow. It'd be, it would be one of the components of, of, uh, of a high truth society, trusting the leaders. And that would mean that the leaders uh, need to be moral, uh, truthful people. They need to uh, they need to have certain characteristics that um, can take a group of people and lead them towards positive things for the people. But they have to have sort of goodness in their heart, a, a willingness to maybe put themselves aside in order mm -hmm. to help society and uh, and to help, I think the key is help uh, begin discussions and then maybe, I don't know that you can institute it, but help with repair. There has to be repair between two groups in order to really move forward. You, you have to talk about things. Just like uh, with a couple, if something's gone awry in a relationship, you need to talk about it. If you don't and just say, oh, yeah, yeah, well, that happened, we'll move forward and we'll forget about it. Usually it bubbles up someplace else. But if you could really talk about it and, and come to some resolution, then that's what's key in, in making, things, making things work, I think. One example is um, that I talk about in my first book is, is the um, genocide in Rwanda where... 800,000 people were killed in 100 days. I'm not saying it's perfect in Rwanda, but somehow the Hutus and the Tutsis were able to come together and live together and work together again after that horrendous thing happened. And I think that there was leadership that allowed them to repair the relationship. Now, it's a that was... Um, an idiosyncratic situation. I believe they had a people's court where the person was actually tried in front of a group of people who had been aggrieved. And if the people believed that somebody who had done something against them, like murdered somebody who was a family member of the group, they had to believe that the person was remorseful and um, that understood and admitted that they did this heinous crime. And then they were able to be allowed back into the society. It's kind of a, a, a rare event, I think, these days. But, and, and things aren't perfect in Rwanda, but, but they, they came a long way. Actually, to, to some extent, women were the ones who were able to do this. They kind of got together and and said, we can go on for the next X number of years. I don't remember the number of years, but, and, and have bitter feelings towards each other where we can work towards repair. These are my words. I'm not sure that they were their words, but they, they did come together and they started selling things that were made in Rwanda to other parts of the world. So they, they had commerce, they began some sort of, uh, commercial enterprises that were helpful. And then they started other, other things uh, having to do with trade together. Um, so that was one thing that moved things forward.
but it was it was being able being able to see the bigger picture. What's going to happen if we don't do this? Just like in a family, if the adults can say, "Okay, what's going to happen to this family?" If we don't, we don't have to agree, but if we don't find a way of resolving our issues, the family isn't going to be able to stay together. So I think that the same principle applies to countries. It's just it's pretty hard to do. It's hard to do in both ways, but it's, it's really hard to get a divided country back together, not with the same beliefs, but with respect for individual differences and group differences. Still finding a way to compromise to get things done. So I think the key is repair. I guess you're also saying that leadership should also have models of repair mourning within them to be able to facilitate this. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it's. It also reminds me of the idea of trauma. I mean, trauma needs to be talked about. Um, what was lost needs to be mourned in order to move forward. Again, it's, I mean, it's, it's not enough to have experienced any kind of trauma, whether it's war or whether it's something that happens to one's person. It has to be talked about. Um, otherwise, it it stays encapsulated within oneself and comes out in another way. I mean, people who are traumatized, if they, if they don't talk about it, I'll say in therapy, but there, there are other ways one can do that. But if, if they don't talk about it, they often get sick or some people act out in other ways against other people. But it's, in a way, it's it's like energy. It, it not being created or destroyed uh, to use the famous Einstein idea it, it has to be dealt with it doesn't just go away the trauma it's kind of like I think I, I say this to patients sometimes so there used to be I don't know if they exist I think they do but I don't know if it's just a fad but like a bottle of coca-cola so if you shake it up Where's the carbonation? You shake it up and put it down. It's still in the bottle. You shake it up and put it down. It's still in the bottle. You've got to start opening up the, the bottle, the opener, and let a little bit, if, you, if, if getting all the carbonation out is equated to uh, toxic things in a group or in a family, you, you've got to open it up. But little by little, the carbonation comes out. Eventually, you have... Coca-Cola that's flat, um, but it, it, it's uh, not a perfect analogy, but uh, one that, that, that people can connect with at times. Yeah, that's a very, that's a wonderful example. And I was just thinking that somewhere technology and social media is also like opening up the bottle and letting things out. But your book also makes us aware of how it kind of enforces populism. So would you also like to share a little about how you feel technology can be made more responsible? Well, yes, I think it's a big problem, partially because there's no real check on 
deceitful statements being passed along and passed along, passed along. I mean, one person says it to another person, then a, a whole group uh, hears about it, and then a, that, another group and a bigger group and a bigger group. So this false, this falsehood is now considered by many to be truth when it's not truth. And, and there aren't very many checks on that. Uh, at the moment, I thought maybe there was hope with Twitter, but we don't know where that's going to go. So I think that um, these social media giants who uh, control algorithms, but really more than that, the people who own these entities, they need to have some governance. They need to be checked in certain ways. And I, I think that I do have some ways in in the book on uh, the last book that I read on populism of commissions that would need to be set up with various people uh, that would monitor these groups, that certain things would not be acceptable. Now it's getting so big that at some point from what I've read, it, it, it could be the point of no return where you can't get a handle on it just because it's picked up by too many other sources. But it seems like there's still a possibility to, to govern this social media world we live in by governing or having some kind of uh, regulatory function over these various platforms, whether it's country by country or whether it's region by region. I'm not sure of that, but somehow it's it's a bigger problem than just that's yeah, a bigger problem than one country uh, it's a little tricky since there are countries that don't speak to each other but somehow it's it's like the idea of global warming it's not you making sure that you uh recycle things i'm making sure that i pick up plastic in my neighborhood it's way beyond that uh, governments need to get involved containing global warming it's it's not just a person to person i mean that helps every little bit helps but it's a pretty big problem so i also talk about about that sometimes so i have a chapter uh on on aspects of global warming and in my that book as well is there a vision that you carry um uh, about a world a place which is either free of populism or populism takes a backseat in that vision? Well, I could write, uh, I could create a government, I think it, on paper, just on paper, <laughs> um, that would look like it would be a fair place for all kinds of people from all, all kinds of backgrounds to live in peace and 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 to prosper, whatever that means for them individually. I, I think one of the major, major tenets that would have to be built into such a, a society would be truthfulness. Um, there is a, a, a man who used to be, and I don't know his exact title, he was an ethicist, I think, at Google. And when he saw all of the, or learned about all of the things that were going on that were shady, he decided to leave and he developed his own 
his own, um, I believe it's a nonprofit organization. But, but he talks about the need for truth. If we don't, and, and various people have, have said this, if we don't find a way to get back to the truth, and what this guy says is we're toast, uh, which is, maybe that's an American saying, but you know we're, we're kind of finished if we can't get back to being truthful um, at the core, the essence of, of who we are as, as a group of society has to be based on, on being honest, being truthful, not, not telling any kind of outrageous lie one or one group wishes to tell on the internet that then multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. That's not going to work in terms of making the world a, a better place. Thank you. I think that's a very uh, hopeful and important note on which we could perhaps conclude our conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. And once again, I would like to tell the listeners that please uh, reach out for Karen's book, which as you probably know is full of so many insights which are very important in today's world thank you once again well thank you so much and thank you for giving me this opportunity